Hey everyone, on this episode of the First Act Podcast, we have music manager Katie Kramer. She talks about how agency life paved her career path and taught her invaluable lessons along the way. She's now a music manager for some top talent, including Lulu Simon and Lucas Nelson. Listen in as Katie gives incredible tips on how to escape being pigeonholed as indie artists. Only here on the First Act Podcast. And now, hosted by Harry G., This is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Alright, so Katie, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Sweet. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about what you do, what your role in entertainment is. Um, I am a music manager for a couple of clients. I manage this one pop rising pop star named Lulu Simon. I have an alt pop singer named Trace. And then I work on the Paul Simon team as part of the management team, as well as the Lucas Nelson and Promise of the Real team as well. So, Wow, that's so exciting. So I'm really stoked today to kind of go through your backstory to see like how you got to where you are. You know, I, I know that you have a little bit of a film and TV background too. So we're going to tackle that. Um, so are you from LA, born and raised? Born and raised in LA, went to college in New Jersey, came back almost immediately because it was freezing. They don't mention that in the long term. So. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be in entertainment. You know, at the time I wanted to be in public relations and yeah, they do have that on the East coast, but most main hubs are in LA. So it just made sense to come back and live at my parents' house for free while I could and get my foot in the door. So that's the best situation. I think, you know, having family that lives in like New York, LA, so that you can kind of chill at mom and dad's house while you do unpaid internships and try to get your foot in the door, get some experience and get to know more people. Right. Exactly. Like I had interned at a couple of public relations firms on both coasts during college. I worked at the, at the Lippin group first during, I think like my junior year, summer or summer between June, sophomore and junior year of college. So I did that. And then I came back to New York and did a full year at Sunshine and Sachs in New York. And I did a winter break with them and did the gold, help them with the Golden Globe stuff at the Sunshine and Sachs LA office. Interned there through my senior year and then came back to LA kind of being like, I guess I'm going to do public relations because it's kind of all I knew. And I was like, I've gone this far in all my internships. And I was really thought that where you interned kind of made or break where you end up working. You know, I didn't realize yet that like any experience is good experience and you can yeah. do other things, you know? So naive little me came back and I was like, okay, well, started working at a film, like a small indie film PR firm for like three or four months before I was poached by a family friend to go work with her at the Gersh agency. They have both, New York and LA offices, I was hired to work in the unscripted. So producers, you know, everyone behind the scenes of executive producers, production companies for reality shows, game shows, anything unscripted falls an alternative. At the time, back back in my day, digital, you know, influencers, you know, YouTubers, 
before they were huge, that all fell under alternative as well. So it was an interesting, so out of, out of my wheelhouse. I had no idea what I was doing, but at the time, you know, everyone says an, an agency on your resume is like gold. I want to interrupt you for a sec. So I want to jump back. So before we even talk too much about Gersh and like the meat of your career, when, when did you decide that you wanted to work in entertainment? Was it during college? Was it before college? Being born and raised in LA and going to schools in Los Angeles, which I was fortunate enough to be, I think you, you surrounded by it, you know, and having a dad who, and, and my mom was also in music as well before she had kids. So kind of just growing up in that world and seeing it and living it even to like a couple steps out of it, you know, it's always, was always around, you know, and I was terrible at math. So that was never like anything to do with accounting or math would have been a no-go. I just knew about it, you know, and it be kind of became, you do something, you know, and you do something you love. So I was always interested in pop culture and that whole realm and being in the know and being part of it without being the center of it. So I didn't never want to be in front of the camera or like a pop star or an actress because I'm trash at both of those things. I'm tone deaf as heck. So that was never even an option, but I liked helping people. And I liked using my skill set, which was, you know, marketing to a degree and understanding how the world worked and how, you know, and I was a sociology major in college and I, you know, was psychology and political science, anthropology. So all these social sciences really helped shape and form my knowledge of how the world and how people kind of work, yeah. which made it. I mean, people think that sociology is like the most ridiculous major, which I don't, I get, you know. As someone who's guilty of thinking that sociology used to be a very useless major, because I took some sociology classes and I was like, what am I learning? But you actually learn different beliefs and attributes to different groups of people. Obviously, some are stereotypes, right? But it actually trains you to think how the world works. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I realize that now, you know, later in my 20s, that it's super valuable. And I've spoken to other people on the podcast who also ended up studying sociology in their undergrad, because like to your to your point, like it's actually very valuable. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really helped me. And even if it, you don't get a lot out of it, you're now looking at the world through a critical lens. You know, you're seeing you're seeing things outside of how you were born and raised, you know, you're giving, you're getting new insights. Like I took a couple of sociology classes like on ageism and, you know, crime and just how those types of minds work, you know, and like subcultures and education so that you, it's a very well run and even business, you know, like how countercultures are, you know, the business culture is and how, you know, for example, an agency, they give you bagel Friday or summer Fridays or casual days as like gifts to make their culture better and more, right. more friendly working. You know, it makes it so that you're, if your employees are happy and your employees want to be there, they're going to do better work. So if you were exposed to entertainment as a kid, because you said that you, both your parents work in entertainment, right? And are they on the business end or are they, are they on the creative side? So my dad's a music manager. My mom worked at Geffen back before she had kids. So like in the eighties, okay. so music centric, which is, so that's kind of why I ended up falling into music in the long run, which is a whole nother like roundabout way. And part of my story is like how I tried to so, so hard to not be 
what my parents were because I didn't want that stigma of, oh, she's only doing that because her dad got her into this job, you know, or because she knows so-and-so because her dad, you know, I didn't want that favor feel where like people discredited me and my ability just because they knew who my dad was. You know what I mean? You know, I have people on the podcast who either, you know, have no, no contacts in entertainment. And then I also have other people on the other side who have all the contacts in entertainment or so it seems, right, that grow up just like you, where, you know, they're in the thick of it and their family's heavily involved in entertainment in some capacity. So in a lot of ways, I think that you guys feel like you have a lot more to prove. Oh, yeah. I mean, the chip on your shoulder is so real in the sense of, yeah, like you people expect and assume that because of who my dad is and who my dad knows, because he's been in this business for 45 plus years, yeah. that I'm their time. But at the same time, that's just, I'm using those connections just to get my foot in the door, you know, and it, I have to keep thinking of it as if someone else had this connection, they would use it too. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you're automatically going to, you know, thrive in this world. It's still a dog eat dog, like, mess of a world sometimes and you have to be prepared for that you know but i'm lucky enough to have that intro so that i can get that agency job i can get that manager job i can speak to so-and-so because i have that connection but that that's what this business is, it is. you know it's all related. i feel bad for it's, all, it's all connections oh yeah oh yeah um, why I never say no to meeting somebody or taking a phone call or because you just never know. And I, I learned this in the agency world. Like there is no such thing as bad information. You know, either you learn from it and take it as I don't do that anymore, you know, or it's something that worked out really well and you keep going with it, you know, and the same thing is with people. Everyone has something to offer, whether you, whether it's positive or negative. Yeah. So I, I want to know, like, what are some experiences like you don't have to share names if you don't want to, but like, what are some experiences that you found have positively affected your career? And then also that have negatively affected your career. I mean, as an assistant, I think the idea the late hours, I mean, every negative I've turned into a positive because I'm a masochist like that. So it's like, okay. So like negative, I think I hit a wall being an assistant, you know, which I, couldn't do it anymore. I was making stupid mistakes. I was getting yelled at, you know, I was mixing up phone calls and like I had hit a wall. I'd been doing it for four years and I was like, I feel like I'm going into a stalemate, you know, and that I was getting worse and worse in my job. You know, I had been fired from Kevin Uvane's desk basically, which is he's, I, I made it literally to the top head of CAA's desk. And then all of a sudden my world came crashing down because I, that experience made me realize I didn't care about actors and actresses, you know, like I wasn't as passionate as Kevin was. And I wanted that passion for my own thing, you know, like I was doing stuff for him and for his passion. And I wanted that for myself. And I wanted to be able to make all these systems around me were like eating, living, sleeping, breathing movies, producers could name. Everyone could watch, have watched many movies. I, to this day, I think I take BuzzFeed quizzes all the time being like, how many of these classics have you seen? And it's like, you've seen two. You're an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) You know nothing. My first boss at Gersh, you know, Outlook has a calendar, like emails. No, no. I had to write every single one of her appointments into a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that too. Like, I was like, 
I'm going to be in your office like five times a day trying to say, she would take the book back. And I'm like, how old do you want? Not that old. She's like, I think now in her fifties. Yeah. But so she was just not into technology. She would, she learned the old school way. All of her contacts weren't in like, you know, the shared outlook contacts or any sort of online. No, no. She had a book, like a, like a book. Yeah. I'm like, I, I had to type everything out and print it for her schedule. Why nothing. It was just so half my job at that point was just consumed with making sure that I, everything was correct in her physical forms. And I'm like, I could just easily put this into the calendar that we share. <laughs> you know, but that, and that I think didn't hurt me, you know, but I never learned. I so saw after her desk, I get pulled from her desk and I'm put into accounting because I had like, I had too much experience to be in the mailroom, right. but not in talent to go and be put in, the, in like the talent floater pool. Okay. So, I went into accounting and was auditing and helping them with audits, found millions, you know, we were a great team. Finally, you know, was doing some like script reading on the side, like doing all that stuff. They finally put me in the floater pool in talent. And I worked for two people, I think total on talent before I left. But I was just, I think after that first experience at Grush, I was a little bit like, I was so behind, what, you know? So I have so many questions. So, okay. So yeah. first off, just to wrap up Gersh. So yeah. which division of talent were you working in? Was it still in like, like TV? They are combined film and TV. Yeah. So my, at Gersh, we did pilot season while also covering indie movies, you know, and studio. So we had all of it plus pitching our own clients, but I was so behind because I had never worked with Outlook. You know, I had never used our shared contacts that the company has because on my desk, I had no, I, we never, I never did that. So you, had was, you had a roller desk and like, uh, and probably like a, like a, like a whiteboard. Yeah. It, I listen, uh, my learning curve had to be real steep at that point because well, I knew this is, this is great for the kids because if they're looking for opportunities, they should consider what they're going to be learning on the actual desks. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So like for a typical talent desk, you need to know how to work IMDb Pro, you know, make sure you know how Outlook works. And I mean, Outlook inside and out. So like creating files, contacts, because one of my biggest mistakes in talent was I was, when I was a floater, I was put on like this like partner's desk for a day. Yeah. And he was like called Winona Ryder, for example. And I'm like, okay, but I was looking in our sh- company's shared you know, contacts, not his Outlook contacts. And of course he was never going to put Winona's number in the shared folder. One can steal her, you know, or when someone leaves, they could take that information with them. Right. So it was contacts on Outlook. I had never used contacts on Outlook on anything I've ever done. So I was like, frick. And all I found in the shared file or whatever for the company was her assistance number. So I made him look stupid because I called the assistant being like, Hey, can I get Winona's phone number? I'm, you know what I mean? Like he was pissed when I say pissed, like he's like, you made me look so dumb, blah, blah, blah. So mistake number one, you know, didn't ask people around me, didn't call his assistant because I just, the fear of messing up made me mess up, you know, and like not fully understanding everything around me. And so that's why I always say, Besides, you know, knowing how Outlook and how everything works in an agency, but also understanding 
like take that moment, ask those stupid questions first and foremost, because you'd much rather look stupid by asking a dumb question than look even dumber by making a fool of yourself and may potentially getting a client upset. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So I, yeah. No question in this world is too stupid. And there is no, a pregnant pause is fine. Even if someone's like, give me this person right now, take the time. I'm not saying like take a thousand years, but take that moment to be like, okay, <laughs> like get this done correctly. Because when you're rolling calls and if you don't know how to roll a call and you drop somebody that you're not supposed to drop, like, or don't drop somebody off of the phone call that you're supposed to drop, yeah. that's, that's a fireable offense. Like, because, because ultimately you need to have your agents back. Oh yeah. Your agent is your client. That's how I think. You, you, yeah. You need to make sure that you are taking care of your agent because that is, you know, I kind of dumbed it down with someone else who had, who had experience working at like UTA and WME is like, it's really just the service industry, mm-hmm. right? You, you, you know, your, your agent is your client and it's like, you working on someone's desk is like getting your training wheels and then eventually you'll get them taken off if right. you're able to really service your client. Correct. Because no agency wants to hire someone who's not comfortable, like 150% servicing your client. Because oh, if, yeah. if you don't know how to service, you know, your talent agent, how the hell are you going to service Bruno Mars? Oh, exactly. There is, that's why like when people were originally told me, oh yeah, being at an agency is the best thing for you because you're thrown into the deep end expecting to know everything and fast. Yeah. And so the quickest way to learn, it's like going to another country and that's the best way to learn that language, you know, is just being in it every day, seeing everything, you know, and people are like, oh, well, like, what if you have a bad boss? I'm like, okay, you take that and you say, this is what I'm not going to do. Or I would do this this way. Oh, this phone calls out horrible i would have approached it this way you know oh you could have negotiated more money but don't say those things out loud but that thinking is everything you're doing for your boss and their clients should be locked in your brain as would you do it that way or would you do it differently you know and that's how you continue to go forward and learn because I moved from Gersh to CAA and was put straight on a desk because I had that, those two years at Gersh. Right. But then I was able to go into the, at that point I was on a desk in motion picture talent. And so all we had to do was studios and indies at CAA. But easier for you now. It was easier because I was like, pilot season was a, a bitch. Pilot season is the worst and you're there for hours and hours, but you're all there together. So it's kind of okay. But it, it's just one less thing to do. I mean, you're always still, if you have, a, if you, we have clients to service. So even if we're not covering, covering projects, we still are trying to pitch our clients to those people, mm-hmm. you know? So we still kind of had our toes dipped in pilot season to a degree and TV to a degree, but not as hardcore. Okay. But as I had experience and I probably had more experience than most people at CAA who weren't already on bigger desks, Within four months of me being there on that smaller agent's desk, I was asked to interview for Kevin Evane's desk, right. you know, because experience and because I had worked with so many different desks and personalities and in TV and in film. And those stepping stones were expedited for me because I had that experience already, you know. But how was the transition then going from Gersh, where you said like they were just like so inefficient? to a company like CAA, which prides themselves on their innovation. 
it was interesting. I, I feel like Gersh is just, they're just smaller, you know what I mean? And they work and function well at that size. You know, I don't, I think their TV department is one of the best. They get more people on TV shows than any other any other agency purely because they're not necessarily just gunning for those top line, you know, starring roles. They have series regulars that work for years on TV shows like Chicago PD or, you know, Big Bang Theory or any of those shows. They have like roles for three, four, five covered with series regulars, you know? So they're getting the people in while CAA and WME and UTA are focusing on packaging and making those bigger roles for their clients as a whole. You know what I mean? So it's just a different feel, but everyone warned me. They were like, you know, CAA is much different. It's way harder. It's, they expect a lot more. It's way more stressful. And I didn't think it was more stressful necessarily. I think being able to do one, you know, motion picture instead of MP and TV really was having that experience made it easier for me, you know, but their expectations are higher in the sense of God forbid you mess up something with a client, they'd cut your head off, you know, and even the smallest thing. The stakes are a little bit higher because it's a bigger company. At Gersh, the heads of the departments had the bigger clients. So I was never necessarily talking to them, you know, Right. but the younger agents do a lot of the servicing for the team. So at CAA, like everyone has a team, like your, your client with Nick Jonas, for example, he has four agents in talent alone who are on his team. They have like a, a bigger guy and then three smaller people who are doing the heavy lifting for him. You know, like I'm calling Nick, I'm talking to all these bigger names, which could be more stressful if you don't know what you're doing and you aren't. It, it, that's also the a big problem is that people get starstruck and like you can't. And that's, I think, where my growing up in entertainment really made me stand out a bit more or have an upper hand in that is that I am jaded as hell, yep. you know, Angeles, like, I don't care. Celebrities don't, aren't, they're not like, oh my God, there isn't somebody who I'd be like, oh my God, I'm talking to so-and-so, you know, that is, I think the number one and biggest thing that I want people need to know is that you can't be starstruck. There is no room for it. You will get fired. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, if, you, if they, you're busy fangirling over everyone who's coming through the office, or not even everyone, just like, you know, a few people that come through, it's extremely unprofessional. Unprofessional, and you can't make those phone calls. And, you you know, how are you going to speak to somebody and do your job correctly if you're too busy, like, texting everyone that you're talking to so-and-so? You know what I mean? Like, that's that's mostly what it comes down to is that this is a very – high profile job to a degree of you're talking to big names and you can't be spilling their secrets to your cousin, Mary, you know, in Wisconsin, like that's not how this whole thing works. And so that sort of privacy and understanding going into it is very beneficial of just knowing that you're not, there are certain things you, you don't share. And this is a very tight knit family community thing that you just can't, because God forbid you say, oh, oh yeah, so-and-so is going to be the next Marvel movie. That gets leaked. They're no longer in that movie and you're fired, you yeah. know? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a huge mistake to make. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you need to be, you need to be good at keeping secrets for sure. You can't even talk to other agents really or other assistants about it. Which is so hard because you, you want to commiserate, but there are certain things that you just don't share, you know? If, if, you're, if you're going into a save meeting, which means like, 
someone's threatening to leave, you're not going to tell people that, you know, you don't want to give anyone because God forbid another agent decides to leave and go to a different agency. You're screwed because they'll take that information with them and go and try and poach that client, you know? So it's, a community and like shared experience and you know you have teams you have teams because that means that not one person is going to be in charge of that one client you know so that if that one agent decides to leave they have four other agents already on their team still doing the work for them so that they'll have a less likely want to leave you know and follow that one person yeah Have, have you ever seen somebody poach someone else's client I mean, yeah, all the time. Right before I got there, DA had a mass exodus of their comedy department. And when all, they all went to UTA within like a day. Yeah. It yeah. was like, yeah, that was like a year before I got there. I, I remember mean, this. Yeah, it was a shit show. It was, a shit it, was, show. it was more than one department, right? I think it was comedy. It was. It's funny because you would think that comedy would be, it was comedy talent that went. So comedy touring, which is part of music and it's called the touring department. It's not necessarily one or the other they lost clients because comedy talent took them all to UTA. <laughs> right, 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 right. So it's, it's a mess, but like, I mean, poaching happens all the time. You know, like I'm sure our leak information all the time. It happens always all the time. That's why it's hard because you don't want one baby agent working for that one client. You want to have them have two or three because God forbid that, that one person decides to leave. They're taking their clients with them. Cause that's the only person they speak to at the company, you know? Mm. So why did you leave CAA? So I left CAA because I wanted to be in music, you know? And I didn't, I don't necessarily think I had touring and on the, on the booking agent side, isn't necessarily enough of a hands-on experience that I wanted, yeah. you know? to be more involved in my client's career, which is kind of why I would want to be in entertainment to get up, to begin with, right. you know, I hands on be there, help shape and sculpt my client's career. You don't want to you be know. transient. Yeah, exactly. I want to be a major part in how, in, in helping someone become a big superstar, you know, that's why I did public relations. I assume public relations was the end all be all. That was, you know, my, first mistake they don't have that much of a say and then i was like okay talent agent you know i'm already here it's convenient i'm just gonna i kind of just fell into this talent world so i was like okay great i'm on this path and going from gersh to caa i was already like okay well this is a a path and if i keep going down this route i'm gonna be stuck doing this got to caa let got let go from kevin's desk not from the company just from kevin's desk and from there, I was like, this is my opportunity to kind of take that next step into music, you know, and be like, okay, this is, well, first I thought it was going to be sports, but I'm like, time out, like, come to break. You don't really, you don't like that that much. So it was like, you know, music. And then from music, I was like, okay, well, if I stay at CA in music, I'm going to be assistant again for another bajillion years because it's right. hardest to get promoted in music. So and- competitive. Oh yeah. It's hugely competitive. All competitive, but like, I know music is very, very competitive. Very well. And, and it's hard, you know, it's like, there's not that many, a booking agent can have way more clients than a music manager, you know, because you're doing one specific job under the bigger umbrella of a man, you know, like the manager's at the top 
and they control the publicist, the booking agent, the accountant, you know, like this person has control to a degree of shaping this client's career, you know? Yeah, at least for touring and sometimes for brand partnerships and other right. other sorts of like, uh, uh, Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. But I'm more of a hands, I came into this wanting to have a hands-on experience with my client and being the person who was behind the scenes helping them get there, yeah. you know? So yeah. I was like, okay, well, I don't want to be a, a music agent, a booking agent. I don't want to do that. I was, my friend Lulu, who, Lulu Simon, was just moved out to LA about a month, about a year, not even, like six months before I all this was happening for me. And her and I were talking and I'm, she's like, I, she didn't have a manager and I was already kind of helping her like, go over, you know, music video de deals and like making sure that people weren't screwing her over because of who her, so her, her dad's Paul Simon. So like, yeah. it is what it is. She came out here wanting to be in music and she also has another, the same sort of chip on her shoulder as I do of like, we don't want to be pigeonholed by what our parents do, you know? So she came is doing the whole pop thing all on her own. It's just, she, she's doing it her own way. So I'm helping her already on the side as I'm figuring out that I, my life is going down this tragic talent hole that I don't want to be in. And she finally was like, oh, why don't we make this official? Like, I'm like, okay, but I'm going to have to quit my job then. Like, I can't do all this work for you if this is on a full-time basis if I'm still working there because it's also weird because you can't, the crossover doesn't work for manager and agent stuff. So she's like, okay. So I quit my job. I'm on a retainer with Lulu. And that's kind of how it all snowballed down. And then. How does that, how does that work? If you don't mind me asking, like, does that mean that you get paid from the artist for like mm -hmm. a period of time? For now. Sorry? Until I have a monthly fee until she becomes bigger and I can start taking percentages, you know? And, and but, then, yeah, you, you get rid of the monthly fee and then, yeah. okay, I get it's, that. So it just makes it so that I can work on her stuff without feeling like I need to work a nine to five, which would get in the way of working on her stuff, you know, which I think happens to a lot of people is that you get stuck doing this nine to five, which then can get in the way of what you really want to do, which is music stuff. You know what I mean? Unless you're in, like, like you did work at Webster or work in music adjacent things, you're going to get stuck doing what, what pays you, you know? And so I was fortunate enough to be, have her be able to offer me a retainer and go from, and go from there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which then snowballed into, my dad was, you know, scoping out Lucas and they were having that conversation and so I, he's like, I want you to help me with this because he's like, I don't want to keep doing this for my freaking rest of my life. I want to retire at some point down the road. Like, he's like, I want you, if this is what you're going to do, like, I'm going to have you, we started out as a, I was a consultant to help them with the social media digital side because love my father, technologically illiterate, but on purpose, you know, doesn't care, doesn't want to, doesn't want to have social media, doesn't want to be included in all that, just yeah, has no interest. Not, yeah, it's not his interest. To be completely no, honest, social media is not my interest either. And I, and, I, and I am a millennial. Right, same, truly same. But like he, none of his clients needed it, you know, like he has old rock stars, like no one, none of their fans are going to be following them on socials about, you know, like they are, 
for interesting facts and fun photos, but not for this in like concert updates, but not for not to live stream on Twitch. Right. Exactly. They're not going to be doing that. So it's one of those things where like, he just never had a need to know how to do that. So he's like, just come on because Lucas is younger and Lucas's audience, because his dad's Willie Nelson. So his audience was already 65 plus. And it's like, okay, he's 31. Probably his audience should probably be a bit younger. You know, <laughs> like we don't need that in his, we don't need his audience love to keep them. They're great. And I get it, but we want to youth him up, you know, make him appear attractive and, you know, interesting to younger, a younger generation. How old is Lucas? 31. Okay. And it, so do you feel like that's, is that, is that, has that been really hard to find a younger demo with him? Harder kind of, but like country's making a comeback, you know, country, well, Americana. I wouldn't even say it's making a comeback. Country, country's is always big. Country's been great. Yeah, I mean, I, I listen, I agree. I think country's awesome. I've always liked it to a degree. I think people are, are now, a bigger pool of people are now finding it cool again. Now that Diplo's doing it, now that, you know, there's a lot more crossover than there used to be. Yeah. Lil Nas X, you know, people who are in these this younger world are making it cool again and not just pop country. You know, we're bringing back Outlaw Country. We're bringing back Americana. Dolly Parton is making, I'm not going to say comeback because she's always been that bitch. But, you know, like people are now coming back to this singer-songwriter world, you know, with the help of Taylor Swift and people who are talented beyond just being generic pop stars. Right. You know, so because singer-songwriters are making a comeback, it makes it easier for people like Lucas to get a bigger audience you know or a better audience but does he have a to play the game like like you know does, does he have to have a tiktok and be a little bit oh, more of course he does. we're getting we're not doing the whole like influencer type tiktok but yeah like tiktok's like, reels are huge you know those are those are views on views that will get us new fans you know i think of an artist as a brand they are what is his brand what what are we trying to say who is he who is this band and what are they trying to say through their music and how can I duplicate that on a social platform without being unauthentic to them? And how can I use that platform to gain fans that wouldn't necessarily find him otherwise? Yeah. So you have an interesting challenge because, because both of your clients, so both Lulu and Lucas, you got a lot of lose. I do. (laughs) Both of them, you know, they're not, they're not starting from nothing and they both have something to prove. But, you know, how, how do you separate them from, you know, what they're being pigeonholed into? Because it's kind of like you're starting from scratch in a way. But you're not. Well, it's harder. So Lulu is easier because my theory is she's far enough removed from her father age-wise that there's a big gap between who his fans would be and who her fans would be. Yeah. You know, age-wise, and her sound is pop. It's 80 synth, Carly Ray, Kim Petras, pop. You know, it's not necessarily she's a singer-songwriter, but she works it and that's just the sound she goes for. So it's easier for her to not be pigeonholed because I don't have that comparison, you know, like they're not gonna compare her brother, unfortunately, is gonna be more compared to, to her dad than she is gender-wise maybe even sound wise to a degree, whether it's the same or different, they're going to always compare father to son. You know, I think unfortunately 
but also fortunately for me, her gender is beneficial for us, you know? I think everybody compares, you know, Jacob Dylan to Bob Dylan. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Which was great, but also bad, you know? And then you have for Lucas, it's harder because Lucas is in the same genre as his dad. You know, he is backing band for Neil Young. He's all of these things that put him in that bubble that we're trying so hard to avoid, you is know? He, is he, has he been playing Luck Reunion? Every year. I mean, he, he, he put, he's part of his dad's backing band. You know, when it's, when it's Willie and family, he's part of that when they say family, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's hard because like, I don't want to take that away from him and them. But at the same time, like I need him, it's make or break in the sense of he needs to be able to be defined by himself and as his own artist, you know? Yeah. So how do you do that? Like what, you know, what, what are you working on now to, to do that? Like what, what's some of your secret sauce? Oh, it's hard because for him, it is getting him that younger audience, you know, and getting him, getting the appeal back outside of, Willie, you know, I'm not saying we're stepping away necessarily, but we try to avoid posting about Willie. We don't necessarily talk about his background and we kind of let his songs speak for themselves. You know, he is talented. He's really talented. And I want that to kind of be our main focus. And I want people to see that and hear those songs. I think our main goal was to make it so that his music was the focus, you know, and that that was going to be what we shaped his entire career on in a way. And, and like all of our imagery and all of our branding was going to be this, we're taking away some of the smoking, you know, we're taking away that whole, if it's connected to his dad, we're kind of pairing it back a little, you yeah. know, like okay. I don't want him to make those connections outside of, Oh, Lucas is playing with Willie, you know, or, Oh, Lucas is playing, you know, that's fine. But outside of that, I don't want it to be, who he is you know because he does have other skills and talents and that's what social media is for you know showcasing him and his personality and the band and their personality you know and i think social media has been so beneficial for him for that because it does individualize him because he is in that same genre and it would be so hard to come in like all of the kids in country i can't name one or two like waylon jennings or, or hit you know like that whole family is shaped by their parents yeah and i don't want to pigeonhole him or trying not to yeah it's very difficult do you guys work or have you thought about doing some sort of like placements or like commercials maybe that you can get behind certain brands that would be maybe different than what what would be associated with willie so that people can start associating lucas with something a little bit different yeah it's hard though because like we want to keep it authentic to Lucas. Like he's part of Luck, not Luck. He does Fry Boots. So he's, you know, an ambassador for Fry. He does, I had a couple of placements here and there, but he was in A Star Is Born. You know, he wrote all of those songs with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. And he was, a, like all that music was him, you know, and his band was Bradley's backing band right. and Bradley emulated Lucas when making that character like that that was his influence so I you you want to highlight that kind of stuff but at the same time as you don't again don't want to pigeon, pigeonhole him into being like oh this is what he is and you know like you can only ride that ride so long before it gets redundant and boring and you have to move on 
So it's just finding that fine line between projects or brands or like what comes next that we can keep people interested in while gaining new fans. You know, I think his Instagram social wise, we've in the last year, year and a half, I think we've gotten, we've gained over a hundred thousand followers, you know, since we've been on. So it's working. It's just unfortunately that we're in a Corona time where his first headlining tour by, by themselves was canceled, you know? And so now we're on a second album cycle, hopefully going to have an album out in June or July or something like that and go from there, you know, but unfortunately COVID took a lot of wind out of a lot of sales and you're kind of going back to square one because like for Lulu, we were performing, we were playing, she had an EP out. So we were, you know, getting her on stage and getting her in smaller venues and all of that stuff. And then this hit and it's like stalled everything, you know? And, 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 and more than just stalling it, it hits the momentum very hard. Oh yeah. I know exactly. you and I were talking about, about Lulu's, you know, Lulu's starting to play more like live mm-hmm. shows and it just, it stunts it so much. Oh yeah. Especially it's just starting. Well, and then it, it, so if you're not playing live, you're not getting that audience, which means that you're not getting those streams, which means, you know, it just is, it takes everything away when you aren't able to, I can have her post whatever I want on social, but that's not going to get her new followers or new fans. You know, she needs to make new music, but can we go into a studio? We couldn't for so long. And then how do I find a producer? You know, like she don't have enough credits to get a, a decent producer, but so then it just becomes like all of our momentum that I, could say, oh, she's, you know, going to be out at these four venues in LA, come check her out. Can't say that, you know? Yeah. So for somebody like her, you, you mentioned it's, it's one of the challenges for her is getting the credits, right? Because I know that yep. she is, she is a newer artist and she's trying to break free from, from, you know, just being pigeonholed as Paul Simon's daughter. So how do you, you know, how, how do you build up more credits for her? writing she's writing a ton i think getting her in the room with other people to write for other people is going to be huge and we're working on that right now you know getting her songs synced sync is a huge thing i mean here's the thing is people are all about streams but streams don't make money for you you know it's like five cents to the dollar it's been crazy like that for stream extra money if you know once once you're a little established, right like 200 streams is like 20 bucks like that's insane so I don't tend to focus on streams in terms of monetary value. I look at it as, is her audience growing? And those monthly listeners, you know, and how can I get that number up? Which would be syncs and getting her Shazams and getting her music out there to more people, getting her in the room with other writers. You know, I pitched her stuff to so many people, not necessarily to work together like I did with you, but for you know, to get her name out there. You know, I've sent it to a bunch of agent friends at CAA. I've sent it to a bunch of managers. I've had my dad make so calls people, for just me. So people are hearing the name Lulu Simon. Lulu right. Simon. Yeah. And understanding, oh, who is she? You know, unfortunately we were right at that cusp of that next step when all this hit hit. So it's now, not that we're back to square one, but we're back in the writing room. She's back getting another EP together, maybe an album, like working on, this is where I'm fortunate enough to have connections where I could, you know, call in favors to at least listen to it, give me advice and that kind of stuff yeah. where, because this, it stunted my, because all this happened for me. I, Lulu and I started working together 2019 in April, 2019. So April, 2020, we were in quarantine. It was our one year anniversary together. And 
uh, nothing, <laughs> you know what I mean? We hadn't gone very far, but so that's this whole thing. I'm now only relying on contacts and connections because everything that I would be doing right now would be going to shows, meeting people out and about, you know, taking meetings, taking phone calls, like all of that social interaction that is what our job is based off of is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, my career was stunted just as much as theirs was, you know, and if I didn't have this great asset and great tool and friendships in departments that I made at CAA, I would have been screwed, you know, and that's why I'm like, thank God I worked at these companies because I now can say, oh, I can call so-and-so at CA because I talked to them and they were an assistant when I was an assistant. And, and unfortunately I don't have those as much in music at the moment, just because of COVID, you know, and I haven't been able to go to shows and meet new people, but I'm hoping once all this is done, we, I will have so much more knowledge on the inner workings of everything that I can hit the ground running kind of like I did going from desk one at Gersh to talent desk, you know? Yeah. And, and I know that, you know, there's at least Facebook groups, like, you know, we met through AAP, yeah. right? And yeah, there's, there's Clubhouse. There, there are some alternatives now, right? It's not, it's right. always not the same as like, you know, going to a concert and meeting people and then, you know, right doing shots and then going, going to the show <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, jumping from right. club to club or, you know, it's, it's very different the way that we network and, you know, not everyone has a podcast where they can interview people at least, you know, on zoom calls. Right. But, you know, I think that the world is slowly opening up, you know, the, now the, the vaccines have been released. Hopefully think we're going to be coming back to a new normal. And I think that people are going to be super stoked about concerts coming back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone's funny because everyone's like, music's been hit the hardest. But everyone loves music. Music will never die. It will never go away. There will always be a need for it. Always be a need for a venue. So, and especially right now, people are itching to go. So I think it's not, we're going to come back stronger than ever because I don't think that there's ever going to be a not there's never going to be not a need for music you know and people this is the one thing that people really want to come back and see their favorite people and be an experience like there's no experience like live music yeah whether it's a small venue whether it's hollywood bowl you know like that whole that feeling you get of being in that humongous ass crowd singing the words to your favorite song drunk or not like with the confetti and the lights and like there's nothing there's nothing better than that you know well, I can't wait for Lou to go on tour and I can't wait to actually see her live. I, I oh my God, you will love her. She's actually also a mini stand-up comedian. So you'll have a little bit of, you know, comedy mixed with music. It's great. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, Katie, thank you so much. You know, I, I don't want to keep you too long. I, I know that, I'll, you know, I, I want to respect the time frame. I could literally bend your ear on all this stuff all day. But I will come back whenever you want. Because I have lots to say. And when I'm going, I'm just chatting. So. Oh, so we'll have to do a part two at some point. I would love that. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to check back in and shout all of you out who are taking the time to check out the podcast, especially those of you who have been sharing it with your friends and writing me such nice messages on Apple Podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you or someone you know has an awesome story that you think should be shared with the world, feel free to write me directly on any of our socials at The First Act Podcast. Until then, stay safe.